Hey, man, it is good to be here. You guys feel excited? I mean, I, I kind of got the idea, maybe not. I don't know. Let's try. Like, are you guys excited to be here? Yes, thank you. And listen, I appreciate you guys joining online as well. Uh, it is such a good thing to gather as God's people, right? I mean, physically present with each other, uh, online, virtually worship. I mean, this is a, a good thing. Uh, and uh, I'm glad to be able to bring you the word today. Uh, my name is Dave Richardson. I'm one of the teaching elders uh, here at Rio. And uh, we've been uh, working through the book of First and Second Kings. Uh, we've been preaching through uh, our series called Desiring the Kingdom. Uh, today, uh, we begin Second uh, Kings chapter 4. And over the last couple of weeks, we've seen the beginning of the ministry of Elijah, uh, who, Elisha, who is the succeeding prophet of God from Elijah. And so as we come into Second Kings chapter 4, I want us to notice a few things. And one of the things immediately that we'll notice, uh, I believe, is that there's a, a slight, slightly different tone from what we've seen over really the course of our study. Uh, I mean, if you've been with us at, at all, so much of what we've seen throughout the study is this amazing display of God's power, right? In an effort to, to wake up the idolatrous, uh, sinful kings and, and people of Israel, we've seen God's power display through famine and judgment and fire and wrath. But chapter four, we have a slightly different tone. There's no fire raining down from heaven. There, there's no she-bears coming and mauling people. I mean, it's a different tone. Now, we see God's power on display, to be sure, but not by wrath and judgment, by, by God's goodness and mercy. And so we see in chapter 4, lined up Elisha performing miracle after miracle. And as we read through it, it actually sounds and feels a lot like uh, reading through one of the Gospels right through the the life and ministry of Jesus coming, healing the sick, feeding the masses, uh, raising the dead, miracle upon miracle, stacked one on top of the other. And and what I found so striking uh, throughout the narrative as I spent some time uh, working through it over the last several weeks, uh, and what I want to spend time considering this morning is in how in these stories we are faced with the very consistent reality of a world that's broken. Right? I mean, we're, we're faced with this consistent reality that things aren't the way they should be. A, a world with poverty and death and struggle. And yet, in the midst of that, in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the challenge, we see this amazing example and response of authentic and genuine faith and pursuit of God. You, you see this rhythm of faith. And maybe you've heard me say, you've heard the definition of faith uh, is being controlled by the promises of God rather than the impressions of your circumstance. And so the question I want us to consider today is this. Do the circumstances of life move you deeper in faith toward God? Or do the circumstances of life drive you away from God in doubt? Now, what I'd like to do is actually read all of chapter 4, all right, verses 1 through 44. And you're like, Dave, that sounds crazy. And I know, it is. Like, who reads 44 verses of the Bible at church? It's insane. That was a joke. You guys are, like, laugh. That's okay. That was funny. Um, All right, no, but seriously, I'm going to read all 44 verses, all right? And, and, And just kind of bear with me. Now, here's why. Because I think as we read through it, we'll start to see and feel and understand the rhythm. 
all right? And, and what we're trying to draw from in this passage. So follow along with me. It'll be up here on the screen as well. 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 through 44. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, your servant, my husband is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there's not another. And the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, go, sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. And one day, Elisha went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, behold, now I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there in, uh, for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp so that whenever he comes to us, he can, he can come and go there. One day he came there and he turned into the chamber and rested there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite. And when he called her, she stood before him and he said to him, Say now to her, see, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. No, I don't need that. And verse 14, and he said, well, what then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, well, she has no son and her husband is old. He said, call her. And when he called her, she stood in the doorway and he said, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, oh man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived and she bore a son about that time, the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. Now, when the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers. And he said to his father, oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, well, why will you go to him today? It's neither new moon nor Sabbath. She said, all is well. Then she saddled the donkey. She sat to her servant. Urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mark Kemel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, look, there's the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, all is well. And when she came to the mountain, to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet and Gehazi came to push her away, but the man of God said to leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, tie up your garment, take my staff in your hand, and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him, and if anyone greets you, do not reply, and lay my staff on the face of the child." 
Then the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore, he returned to meet him and told him, the child is not awakened. When Elijah came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in, shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. And the child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, call this Shunammite. So he called her, and when she came to him, he said, pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. She picked up her son and went out. And Elijah came again to Gilgal when there was a famine in the land. And as the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, set on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophet." One of them went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds and came and cut them up and put them in this pot of stew, not knowing what they were. And they poured out some some for the men to eat. But while they were eating of this stew, they cried out, oh, man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. He said, well, then bring flour. And he threw it into the pot and said, pour some out for the men that they may eat. And then there was no harm in the pot. A man came from Belshazzar, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in a sack. And Elijah said, give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So we repeated, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. So he set it before them and they ate and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So truth is, we don't like pain, right? We don't, we don't like discomfort. Paul Brand, uh, an orthopedic surgeon, spent the first part of his, uh, of his career in India and then the last part of his medical career in the U.S. And he wrote a memoir, um, and, and I felt something he said was very telling. Uh, here's what he wrote. He said, in the United States... I encountered a society that seeks to avoid pain at all costs. Patients lived at a greater comfort level than any I had previously treated, but they seemed far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it. I think he's right. I mean, we really do live our lives seeking comfort and understandably trying to avoid hardship. But, but we've created this mindset that, that struggle shouldn't come. And, and we have this idea that we can manufacture a world without it. And we think if we could just get this and if that can happen, we can avoid pain altogether and we won't experience struggle. But see, the truth is, man, this side of eternity, struggle is one of the consistents in life. Like, I mean, we can bank on it. Right? In this life, during Elisha's ministry, roughly 900, 850 BC, and as we experience in our own life now, death seems to be constantly battling against life. Circumstances happen. Life happens. How are you responding to those circumstances? 
Do the circumstances of life move you deeper in faith toward God? Or do the circumstances of life drive you away from God in doubt? Now, our passage this morning, we see these beautiful examples of what it looks like to move toward God in faith. In the midst of the challenges and the circumstances of life, we see this rhythm of faith. And so for the rest of our time, I want us to consider that rhythm. The, the principles of moving toward God in faith. And we're not going to go verse by verse, right? I mean, we, we would be here a long time if I was going verse by verse with those 44. But what I want to do is kind of comprehensively take a look at this. And I, I want to look and, and, and check the rhythm of faith from a high level, okay? And here are the four things that we see in this rhythm of faith. The first thing is that we need to doubt our doubts, all right? So first step in the rhythm of faith is doubt your doubts. The second is cast all your cares, Uh, The third is pursue expectantly. And the fourth is never let go. All right, we're going to flesh these four principles, these four steps in the rhythm of faith as we make our way through the rest of our time this morning. All right, so the first principle of moving toward God in faith, the first step in the rhythm of faith is to doubt your doubts. And here's what I mean. I mentioned earlier that faith is being controlled by the promises of God rather than the impressions of your circumstances. You see, very often, it's the impressions of the circumstances of life that control us. And it can absolutely drive people away from God in doubt. Right? So some read this passage, and we see miracle after miracle, and they read and say, yes, God is a God of miracles. He is faithful. Let's pursue him. We should pursue him. But, but truth is, others read this and think, there is no way I can believe this. Right, right. We live in a natural world with natural laws, supernatural things, or fantasy. And the miracles they see in the Bible is the reason in their mind to doubt and reject even the existence of God. It's interesting because in my experience, people often come to this tragic conclusion that there, that there is no God based in a few different ways. It's either because they they see themselves as as this rational, logical person and only irrational, illogical, fantasaical people believe in God and the supernatural, right? Science and and theology contradict, they say. And so there's this general skepticism. Or uh, the other way, and very often tied to the first, they come to this conclusion because in their experience, God hasn't answered prayers like they thought he should. Certainly not like they see in chapter 4 today. And so their line of reasoning is that either God is asleep and doesn't care or he doesn't exist at all. And they conclude, man, I would rather believe in a God that doesn't exist than think he just doesn't care. In college, I uh, waited tables at J. Alexander's. I don't tell a lot of stories from college, but this is one. Uh, also a joke, you guys, it's, it's 11 o'clock, you guys are supposed to be alive. You can laugh. It's okay. Um, sorry, I waited college. I, no, I waited college. I try this again. I waited tables while in college. Jay Alexander's favorite restaurant still, by the way. Uh, so good. Carrot cake with the cream cheese icing. They serve it warm on the plate. So good. All right. Uh, I served there for several years. I was kind of known as the, as the Christian, uh, the Christian guy. And I would often, uh, it would often lead to spiritual conversations with my buds and other wait staff. And I remember one time sitting, uh, with one of my buddies, uh, named Cooper. 
And we're sitting there having lunch, maybe between shifts, and we're just talking. He starts asking me about my faith. I start sharing. And at some point, I asked him where he was at spiritually, right? Like, where, where did he land in all of this? And he told me just straight. He said, Dave, listen, I don't believe in any of that. I mean, I don't believe in God at all. And he went on to share that growing up, his younger sister was battling uh, a terminal illness. And he shared that he would pray every single day that God would heal her. And he prayed and he prayed for years. But his sister was never healed. She died four or five years old. Cooper, eight, nine years old, said at that moment he was determined to be an atheist. Man, that's heavy. That's absolutely tragic. I mean, what do you do with that? And maybe you find yourself here this morning and you have either of those mindsets, same confusion, same doubt. What do you do with it? And I hope to address both of those as we make our way through this morning because the stories and the miracles of our passage speak to it as they give us in the midst of extremely challenging circumstances, this profound illustration of what it looks like to move in faith toward God in the midst of the struggle. Right, the, the poverty of the distressed widow, the barrenness of, of the wealthy Shunammite, the tragic loss of her son, the, the poison stew for the sons of the prophets, and the feeding of the hundreds with, with just some barley and, bran, and grain. And what's interesting is you can hear the distress, you can hear the doubt and question from them as they interact with the circumstances. Right? Consider the Shunammite woman as Elijah prophetically declares that she would become pregnant and have a son. And he says in verse 16, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And her response, no, no, my Lord. Oh, oh, man, I've got, do not lie to your servant. And then after her son passes, verse 28, she says, did I not ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? Or, or the man who brings the 20 loaves of bread and barley and Elijah directs his servant to feed the multitude with the 20 loaves of bread. He responds in verse 23, how can I set this before a hundred men? But see, the consistent that we see with each of these stories, with each of these, these narratives of mirrors, is even in their distress, even in their doubt, they move toward God. They cry out to God. Right? They're controlled not by the doubt and the impressions of their circumstances, but rather toward God in faith. And see, this is so important. I hope we hear this today. To seek God in faith, you have to doubt your doubts. Right? Wherever you are in your faith journey, all you have to do is doubt your doubts to seek God. Look, You have doubts. Like we have doubts. Circumstances in life happen. Pain, struggle comes. Circumstances that have led to skepticism. But you have to doubt your doubts. And so for the skeptic, here's what I want you to consider this morning. Over the history of the world, some of the greatest minds and hearts in history have embraced the Christian faith as utterly true. In fact, some of the greatest scientific minds throughout history have been Christian. And far from their faith being in conflict with their scientific pursuits, it was actually the very basis for them. Copernicus, Galileo, Kepler, Sir Isaac Newton, Faraday, I mean, deep men of faith. 
It's interesting. A study was done about a decade ago by the Pew Research Center, and it indicated that over 50% of American scientists believe in God. So this whole notion that, that, that science and theology, that they contradict, it's, it's not true. I love what Dr. John Polkinghorne says. He was a former physics and mathematics professor, former president of Queens College in Cambridge. Here's what he says. Men of science can receive from religions deeper understanding than could be obtained from science alone. The physical world's deep mathematical intelligibility and finely tuned fruitfulness are reflections of the fact that it is a creation. And if it's a creation, there's a creator. See, belief in the God of the Bible and the supernatural has been embraced by some of the greatest minds throughout history. But so many have come to a conclusion about God without truly considering the evidence. I love what C.S. Lewis, a towering intellect, Oxford professor, said commenting on that claimed contradiction between science and Christianity and the supernatural. Here's what he says. Belief in miracles far from depending on an ignorance of the laws of nature, is only possible insofar as those laws are known. So this mathematical intelligibility, this this succinctness and finely tuned fruitfulness of all things, the natural laws are known, and and the belief in miracles is, is not because of an ignorance of those things. Listen to what Tim Keller said in, in his book, The Reason for God. He says this, we modern people think of miracles as the suspension of the natural order, but Jesus meant them to be the restoration of the natural order. The Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease, hunger, and death in it. Jesus has come to redeem where it's wrong and heal the world where it is broken. His miracles are not just proof that he has power, but also wonderful foretaste of what he's going to do with that power. Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our minds, but a promise to our hearts that the world that we all want is coming. So listen, we could go on and on. There's so much that we could say here. And if you're interested in reading more about that question of is there conflict between science and Christianity, go to our church website. We actually have a free ebook on our church website written by Nikki Gumbel, who's the founder of Alpha. The ebook titled, Is There a Conflict Between Science and Christianity? It's embedded on our Alpha page. Check it out, 33 pages, something like that. Super easy read. But my point is, you should doubt your doubts. Right, Faith starts by doubting your doubts enough to seek him. And anybody can do that, and we all must do that. It's useless to say, ah, man, I'm in distress. I wish I believed in God, but I don't. Listen, the Bible says all over the place, seek him while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. It says in Jeremiah, you seek me, you'll find me if you seek me with all your heart. So seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Some of you will doubt anything but your doubts. Some of you doubt anything but your doubts. But is that fair? Like, why should your mistrust and your cynicism be exempt from doubt? Or, Or put another way, why should you be cynical and skeptical about everything except your cynicism and suspicion? Right? Does that make any sense? Until you're willing to see that if you have doubts, the only honest thing to do is to doubt them. That first step in the rhythm of faith and that move toward God, even with your doubts, is to cry out to God. 
right? To honestly ask your questions, seek him. Yell at him, if you're real, if this is real, convince my heart, show me your glory. And that's the beginning of this rhythm of faith. And it doesn't stop there. The, the second step in this rhythm of faith that, that we, we draw out from our passage is to cast your cares on him. And we see in each of these stories from chapter 4, even in their distress and anxiety, even in their doubt and confusion, they, they move toward God in faith by casting their cares over to the only one who is strong enough to carry them and powerful enough to do anything with it. One of the greatest commands that we see of the God of the Bible is that he lets us cast our burdens. One of the greatest things about the God of the Bible is that he commands us to let him carry our burdens, right? To let him work for us. Matthew chapter 11 says this, come to me, all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Psalm 55 says, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. Isaiah 64, from of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God beside thee who works for those who wait for him. And then 1 Peter 5, cast all your anxiety, cast your cares on him because he cares for you. Listen, God wants to be a burden bearer for you because it demonstrates his power. It demonstrates his goodness and mercy. I want you to grab hold of that this morning. He cares for you. So throw the garments of your burdens, of your anxieties onto his shoulders. He wants to carry it. He's strong enough to carry it. I love what John Piper says, uh, commenting on first Peter five. Uh, he says this, when it says that he cares, it means he will not stand by and let things develop without his influence. It means he will act. He will work. Not always the way we would. He's God. He sees a thousand connections we don't see. If you believe that he cares, which is what the promise says, and believe that he is God, then your fears will be lifted. So faith is being controlled by the promises of God, not the impressions of the circumstances of life. So doubt your doubts enough to seek him. Cast your cares on him because he cares. And the third step in this rhythm of faith is to pursue him expectantly. Right, the, the widow approached Elisha expecting. Right? I mean, her mindset wasn't, well, let me just go tell Elisha what I'm going through. That, that we're in poverty, uh, that we owe a debt that we can't pay, sons are going to be off to slavery. No, her, her pursuit was expectant, right? Elisha, as the prophet of God, as the intermediary to God, was the only one who could ultimately uh, meet her need. There, there's a confidence as she approaches. Uh, you see the same in the Shunammite woman. Uh, I don't know if you noticed it as we read through uh, the passage, but her response after her sons died, right, as, she's, as she starts pursuing Elisha, both her husband and Gehazi ask, well, what's going on? And her response is, it is well. It is well. Verse 23 and 26, she's, she's completely undone, inside and out, as she approaches Elisha, who has no idea what's happened, right? The Lord hasn't revealed to him what happened. But, but he sees that she's completely distressed in agony. She's understandably displaying great distress. She's completely undone. And her response 
in pursuit of Elisha is it is well. It's interesting that the Hebrew word there is shalom. It means peace, completeness, wholeness, right? There's this confidence, this remarkable faith that this situation is not catching the king of kings, the king of the universe, the creator of all things, who's holding all things in his hands. He's a, she's approaching and, and saying, no, this is not catching him by surprise. It is well. She undoubtedly heard about Elijah raising the dead uh, of the widow of the Zarephath son, right, from, from 1 Kings chapter 17. She knew about that. There was this confidence that God could raise her son from the dead and belief that he would. It's interesting, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 36, in the, the, the Hebrew uh, faith chapter, right, it actually calls on the faith of the, of the uh, widows and the women that displayed faith in the resurrection of the dead. It's interesting, nine out of ten resurrections in the Bible um, were involved with women. Interesting side note there. What I'm saying in all of that is that, that the Shunammite widow, or the Shunammite woman, had every thought and belief that God could raise her son from the dead and that he would raise her son from the dead. There is an expectancy. And so as she pursued expectantly, so must we. See, far too often we approach God with our prayers, casting cares on him, but not expecting too much in return. I know I'm guilty of that. We set the bar pretty low for God. I heard a story uh, about a small town experiencing a severe drought, and I think it's fictional, but it illustrates the point well. So uh, bear with me on that, right? It's fictional, but it's still good. All right, the fields were parched, uh, brown, lack from rain. The crops were wilting. They're thirsty. People are anxious. They're irritable. Uh, they search for uh, the sky for any signs of rain, nothing. Days turned into weeks, into months. No rain came. Uh, the ministers of the local church in the small town called for an hour of prayer on the town square. Uh, And they requested that everyone just bring an object of faith for inspiration. So at high noon on that appointed Saturday, the townspeople all gathered in the square. They they, they filled the square with their anxious faces but hopeful hearts. And the ministers were touched as they saw like just the variety of objects clutched in their prayerful hands. I mean, holy books and crosses and rosaries. When the hour ended, as if almost on magical command, a soft rain began to fell. Or fall. A cheer swept the crowd as, as they, they held their treasured objects in their hand, high in gratitude and praise to God. But in the middle of the crowd, one faith symbol seemed to overshadow all the others. And it was a small nine-year-old child who had brought an umbrella. The late theologian David Pawson said it well. He said this, there's a kind of false piety that says we shouldn't look for answers to prayer. We should just pray and leave it to God. That's not Bible prayer. Bible says, go and look. If we're praying for rain, then look for rain. We're told to watch and pray, and that watching implies that you're looking for something to happen. So real, let's pray expectantly. Let's pursue him expectantly. Now, this doesn't mean that we can manufacture the way that God responds, right? I mean, what happens when when you are watching, when you are looking, when you are believing something to happen, and it just doesn't, right? I mean, like Cooper, there wasn't healing. And that brings us to this fourth step in the rhythm of faith, and that's never let him go. 
Right, we see it in the Shunammite woman as she latches on to Elijah, not letting go. I mean, she wasn't going to let him leave her side. And in the same way, we must never let go. Continue trusting God. And that is particularly true when we don't get the answer that we're expecting. Listen, we, we can't pretend to understand all of God's ways. But here's what I do know. If we have a God infinite and powerful enough to be angry at for not answering our prayers the way we think he should, then this God must be infinite enough in all of his wisdom and power to have sufficient reason for allowing it to happen as it did. So in the midst of the trial, the challenging impressions of our circumstance as you doubt your doubts and seek after him, casting your cares over to him, pursuing expectantly, right? We know that he has the power to heal, that he has the power to miraculously intervene. And and, and we should believe that he will. But please hear this. We must also trust that even if he doesn't answer like you think he should, his plans and purposes are good. Right? I mean, he knows far better what we need. His promise is that he is working out everything for his glory and for the good of those who love him. You can trust him. He's faithful. I love uh, how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, how they respond to uh, being led into the fiery furnace in Daniel chapter 3. Do you remember that story from Sunday school? Like the felt pad and like felt, that was kind of my experience. So Shadrach, it's interesting. Uh, so King Nebuchadnezzar, right? He, he, he created this golden image. He demanded that God's people bow down and worship it. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused. And so when the king threatened to throw them into the fiery furnace, listen to how, how they responded in Daniel 3. He says, our God whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Should you hear that? God is able to deliver us, and we believe that God will deliver us. And even if he doesn't, we will still praise the name of the Lord. That must be our default position, right? Regardless of what we're walking through, but especially when we're walking through that valley of suffering, that struggle and circumstance that's distressing. See, the Bible calls us and frees us to pray boldly and courageously and expectantly. I mean, we should pray for healing because we know that God has the power to heal and we should believe that he will heal. Right? Let's not set the bar too low. Like there's not a bar too high for God. Right? He can break every single chain. He can climb every mountain. He can overcome every obstacle. And we should believe that he will. And trust at the same time that even if he doesn't, it will be because he has a better plan and a higher aim in mind. So keep trusting. Never let go the rhythm of faith. Doubt your doubts. Cast your cares. Pursue expectantly and never let go. Amen, Rio? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we are thankful uh, for your goodness, uh, your mercy, Lord. We're reminded this morning of a significant truth that the world that we live in is, is not the way it should be. The reality that we go through real struggle 
The circumstances of life can be challenging. Lord, I don't know where everyone stands today in their relationship with you. But Lord, I pray for those who do know you, that you would embolden their prayer, that you would allow their faith to grow and to rise up, that they might continue to pursue you, casting their cares on you, pursuing expectantly, but trusting always in your goodness and your mercy and your faithfulness. Lord, I pray for anyone here that that does not yet know you. Lord, there, there are some here, no doubt, that have not given their life to you as their Lord and Savior. And I pray that today might be the day of their salvation, that you would open their ears to hear and their eyes to see and soften their heart to receive the goodness of your love. Lord, that they might doubt their doubts enough to seek you and call upon your name because your promise is true. When we seek you, we will find you as we seek you with our full heart. So Lord, I pray that we seek you today and always. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.